Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. We're only going to make it through that portion this evening. We've been working our way through this letter, and I think you'll find that on page 1002 in the Black Pew Bible. What's Hebrews about? If Hebrews was a symphony, it would have, I think, two themes. One major, one minor. A major key would something would sound something like this. You know what I'm, you know what I'm doing, right? And this is why they don't like me during the singing, you understand. It's the theme song from what? It's from Rocky. The heart of a champion. It's hopeful and optimistic because Jesus is the victorious champion. And all who believe in him will share in his victory. The minor key, which punctuates the major key, is bottom. Bottom. Right? Theme from Jaws, the great white killer shark. If there's a fin in the, uh, 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 in the water, right, you, um, you hear the music. It's ominous. Stay out of the water. Most of Hebrews is major key. It's hopeful. But it is punctuated on numerous occasions by this minor key. It's realistic. Tonight we come to the second realistic minor key passage, a warning passage. And it's actually lengthy. It'll go from 3 verse 7 all the way to the end of chapter 4. But just tonight, verses 7 to 12, this portion of it. The first minor key was in chapter 2, 1 to 4. There he said, the concern was this, look, don't drift away from Jesus. Now the danger is falling away from Jesus. In the first, the problem was inattention to him. In this, the problem is the rejection of him. I want you to consider that and consider your heart from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. This is the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Amen. This is God's word. May he come.
cut our hearts by it. Let's look to Him in prayer. Father, pierce our hearts by Your Word and grant that the truth of Your Word would bring joy to our hearts and light to our eyes and behold Christ before us and show us our need of Him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What's the writer doing? He's quoting Psalm 95. You heard me in the call to worship uh, declare the first two verses just prior to this passage. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Now he quotes the rest of that psalm. And he does so because it's about the experience of Israel when they were in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. And he wants to draw a lesson from that. A pointed lesson that he makes very clear at verse 12. And so we want to think about this together. I want to do it in three parts. Three things we should learn. In verses 7 to 11, we should be warned by the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And second point, verses 7 through 11 again, we should examine our own hearts. And then finally at verse 12, don't fall away. So those three things with you this evening. In the first place, be warned by the example of Israel's unbelief in the wilderness. Now, why does he get there? Why did he come to this? How did we arrive here? Well, in verses 1 to 6, he had just been talking about how wonderful Jesus is as the son over all God's house. And he had compared him to Moses, who is a servant in God's house. And he says, look, Jesus is greater than Moses, but he's also like Moses. Moses was faithful in the house, and Jesus was faithful in the house, though Jesus has greater honor and glory, as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Moses was just a part of the house, but both were faithful. And so he's been thinking about the house in which they were both faithful, and now he's thinking about his hearers and their need to have faith, And he reflects on the Israelites in the time of Moses. They were not like Moses. They were unfaithful, faithless. He's thinking now about this community that's hearing these words for the first time. We're a community hearing these words, a community gathered around Jesus to hear good news about Jesus. And as Moses was faithful, as Jesus was faithful, he says, look, I want you to keep your faith in Jesus. But his example is a negative one. Why? Because the Israelites were different than Moses. Moses in the wilderness experienced trusted in the Lord, and the Israelites in the wilderness experience did not trust the Lord. And one of their temptations as a congregation, having, as the first hearers, having come out of Judaism by and large and embraced the Messiah, they're now being tempted to go back. To Judaism. They're, they're being tempted to turn back from the wilderness and go back to slavery in Egypt and not move forward to the promised land. And so he begins with a quote from Psalm 95, which is the inspired psalmist's own reflection on the hearts of those people in the wilderness. And it, and it really picks up the story of Exodus chapter 17, where at the, at the waters of Meribah and Massah, they rebelled against the Lord. They failed to believe. What happened there? Well, you know, I assume, 
some of the story, at least, of God's goodness to the Israelites. It was actually exceptional and incredible. They had been, since uh, after Joseph's death, uh, a growing nation, but they had been in Egypt and they had been enslaved by the Egyptians. They were cruelly treated there. They were overworked and underfed. They were chained, they were beaten, they were starved. They had many complaints. And so what, God, what did God do? He heard their cry when they cried out to him. Because God had promised them in Abraham he would bless them. And he would rescue them. And he did. He raised up a deliverer for them. He brought Moses to them. And he punished Pharaoh by, and rescued the Israelites in Moses. He brought them out of slavery and misery. And he brought them into freedom. And God, as you may recall, miraculously appeared to them by day in a pillar of a cloud. And by night in a pillar of fire. And he led them so they knew exactly where to go. He was visibly with them in these forms. And you may remember, he brought them to the Red Sea. And then they couldn't go any further. And all Pharaoh's army is coming behind them to destroy them. And what did God do? God parted the Red Sea. They walked on dry ground. They passed through and God drowned all Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And then on the opposite side of the Red Sea, they were thirsty. And they came across bitter water. And God turned it into sweet God brought them quail for meat every evening, evening by evening. And God brought them bread dropped out of heaven, manna from heaven, morning by morning. For 40 years in the wilderness, their sandals never wore out. Their clothing never wore out. They were thirsty and God had Moses strike a rock and water gushed out of the rock. Miracle after miracle for daily needs, daily provision, daily protection, daily examples of his love and care and concern for them. And how did they respond to him? Not believingly like Moses. They grumbled. They complained. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness? We'd rather have Pharaoh than Moses. We'd rather have the gods of Egypt than The true and living God, you say, cares for us. God's power and God's provision was in their face. And they asked, is God even among us? Does he care about us? And God was offended by their unbelief. He was provoked by it, says Psalm 95. And he actually wiped out the entire generation that was over the age of 20 when they came out of Egypt. They never got to enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness. What does their experience have to do with us? We are part, now maybe you're new and visiting with us today, so you take that with a grain of salt, but many of you have been around here a long time. Some of you are members. Maybe you've been in other churches. We are part of a community in which God's power and God's provision is made known. We were slaves to sin. We were living in the fear of death. We were under the tyranny of the devil. We were living as enemies of God. And what did God do? He came down. He became like us. He incarnated. And he went where? To the cross. 
And he died the death that we deserve. And he was raised, where? To life, to live forevermore, to be exalted over all things. Why? For the good of his church, to build it. And he promises to everybody who trusts in him that he will give you pardon for all your sins and he will give you everlasting life in paradise. He will do all that for you. And it is entirely possible that you could be a member of the building, the church, the household of God under that message and not believe in Jesus. It is entirely possible that you could spend your entire childhood growing up around Christianity and never belong through faith in Him to Him. And it's possible to profess Him with your lips publicly and to deny Him in your heart privately. And you will not reach the heavenly promised land in that way, he's saying. If you do sincerely believe in Jesus, genuinely believe believe in Jesus, not perfectly believe in Jesus, nobody does. That's why you need him. Don't turn back, he says. Don't leave Jesus and his people Even if it's hard to be a Christian. Maybe you're looking at your life as a Christian. You're saying, I've I've got so far to go. I mean, who knows how many decades I have until heaven. I don't like the wilderness experience. I don't like being in this world. I want heaven now. Don't let that be a reason for you to reject Jesus. As an elementary school principal who meets with all kinds of kids and has all kinds of interesting stories to share She heard of uh, one story passed on by a teacher, little Johnny, a first grader. He's a little pill. And uh, Johnny, on the first day of school, after lunch and after recess, came back into the classroom and began to pack up all his stuff to take everything to go home. What are you doing, Johnny? I'm packing up to go home. Well, said the teacher, you're a big boy now, Johnny. This is first grade. And in first grade, we have school after lunch until 3 p.m. You're only halfway through the day. And he responded, well, who the heck signed me up for this? (laughs) Sometimes Christianity can feel like first grade. Every now and then, right? And don't we say, who signed me up for this? When will life get easier? Now, it is true that actually life is easier if you have hope. It's easier than life without hope. It is true that life is easier if you know that there's purpose and meaning uh, than it is to live without purpose and meaning. But that doesn't mean life in this world is heaven on earth. It is not. And he warns us by the example of Israel to take it to heart. But let me say this. If you do believe genuinely and sincerely and however imperfectly in Jesus, don't think that Jesus will be unfaithful to you if you are struggling with sin. That's not the point of this text. Not in this way. He's talking about people who reject Jesus as their Savior, not Christians who are struggling with being fallen people who need a Savior. As one pastor put it, the author of Hebrews is not trying to discourage sensitive And sincere Christians who are struggling with sin. When you begin the Christian life, you are going to be in a fight 
against sin for the rest of your life. That's the normal state of the Christian life. A war. A war in which the flesh fights against the spirit and the spirit fights against the flesh. And that is a sign, not that you were dead, but actually it's a sign that you're alive. It's not a sign that you're outside of Jesus. It's a good sign that you're actually in Jesus, that Jesus is in you because the spirit of holiness in you hates sin, even while you're fallen, sinful heart still struggles. So don't don't misunderstand the warning and caution he's giving here. Just beware of Israel's unbelief. Now the second thing is this. Go ahead and examine your heart. Verses 7 to 11. He mentions the heart at verse 8. He mentions the heart at verse 10. A woman I met moved to Dallas. During the move, she needed some mundane medication. And since she hadn't found a doctor yet, she called her brother who was a doctor and asked him to write her a prescription. Her brother reluctantly agreed over the phone, though he insisted that she call a doctor immediately. A few months later, she called him and asked again for another uh, favor, and he reluctantly agreed. And then a year later, she called him again, and he said, she said, you know, I still haven't found a doctor. Will you call the prescription in for me? And he responded, no, you're going to get up and you go to a real doctor because you need to grow up. And that summer she grew up, she went to a real doctor for the first time in 10 years. And since she was a new patient, they scheduled her for a routine physical. And the doctor and her are chatting during the physical, and she sticks the stethoscope on her chest to listen to her heart. And the doctor gets quiet and then stops her mid-sentence and says, tell me about your heart. And she says, what do you mean? The doctor tells her she needs to go to a cardiac cardiologist right away sets her up for that very day she goes to the cardiologist office and the tech takes her back puts on the ekg and immediately says to her tell me about your heart and she says what do you mean and then she said well the doctor's going to want to see you now and so the doctor comes in what's wrong with your heart and the doctor comes in and looks at the sleep monitor and the ultrasound Turns out her heart rate during sleep in the middle of the night was 150 beats. It had no regular rhythm. And the doctor said, look, you can be on medicine for the rest of your life or you can have it surgically corrected. And she replied, this can't be happening. I went to the doctor this morning to get Claritin. And the doctor said, you don't understand. You're in a dangerous place with your heart. And the woman said... But otherwise, I'm healthy, right? And the doctor replied, there is no health apart from your heart. And so she ended up having surgery. The same is true spiritually. There is no health for you spiritually apart from your heart. It is the main thing in religion. It is the battleground. And so we are to examine ours, and I have three questions based on verses 7 through 11 for us to ask. Number one, do you harden your heart against God's voice? Today, he says, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden 
your hearts. And again, he's quoting Psalm 95. He doesn't tell you who the human author is. He says that the Holy Spirit wrote these things, that this is God speaking to you in the scriptures, that as you read the Bible, God himself is talking to you. Don't think he means, have you had some mystical experience of God speaking to you out of nowhere? He's saying, have you heard the Bible? God's talking to you about his son. Don't harden your heart against the good news of a gracious Savior. He's warning them about this. And that term hardened heart is the term that was used of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. He was in spiritual rebellion. So when you hear about Jesus, who had who was in heaven in glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit in everlasting joy and love and perfection and beauty, stepping down out of that, laying aside the prerogatives of his deity without ceasing to be divine and adding to himself humanity so that he could suffer, so that he could feel pain, so that he could die for our sins upon a cross, so that he could be crushed by the wrath of God. To spare us from his wrath. When you hear these things and that he's risen and he's building a house, he's gathering people, he's restoring God's family. You hear all that, don't buck up against him. Today is the day to listen, he says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let it melt your heart. Second question. Do you put God to the test? Notice the language of verse 8. They put God to the test because uh, they were testing God to see if he was worthy of their trust, but they were never willing to trust him. Verses 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They grumbled about the water. They grumbled about the food. They grumbled about the journey to Canaan. They didn't like the leader God had given them. You may remember in Exodus chapter 32, Moses went up on the mountain to meet face to face with God on their behalf. And he was gone so long that they got sick and tired of waiting for him. And what did they do? They melted down all their gold and they made the golden calf so that they could worship an image of an Egyptian bull in place of worshiping the God whom Moses was meeting with on their behalf. They just had to have some physical object of God that God hadn't given them because they wouldn't listen to the words that God had said to them. They wanted to use their eyes. They didn't want to use their ears. They wanted to see him, but they didn't want to hear him. And time And again, they refused to trust him. And they did it for 40 years until they were all wiped out. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Third question. Do you go astray in your heart? Notice that language. They had wandering hearts. Verse 10. They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. They'd heard God's will. They'd had the Ten Commandments given to them. And though their feet kept marching with Moses, however reluctantly, in their heart, 
they went anywhere and everywhere except with Moses and following the Lord. They didn't want to know the Lord. They didn't want to walk with the Lord. They really didn't want the Lord to walk with them. And though they were called to repentance, they did not want to turn back to the Lord. And they didn't. They always go astray in their hearts, the Lord says about them. And they didn't care about that. But he cared profoundly. He was, it says, provoked by them. He was indignant. He was righteously angry. In verse 11, he says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The writer is giving here a, a bad example. And he's saying to us, don't be like them. It didn't end well for them. What's the state of your heart? And so he concludes here, verse 12, it's a partial conclusion, admittedly, by saying this, take care, brothers, brothers and sisters, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's our last thing. Don't fall away. Examine your heart. Let there not be an evil, unbelieving heart there. A hardened heart, a heart that always tests the Lord, that always goes astray, that's an evil, unbelieving heart. If you will not trust him, you will not know him. And if you do not know him, you will not enjoy being close to him. And in the end, you will end up far from him. That's the teaching of this passage. And that's not surprising, right? That's kind of the way it is in normal human relationships. This went into my notes. Sorry, brother, before the prayer request came... But when you start to distrust someone, and I impute distrust on nobody's part. But in business relationships, if you do start to distrust someone, does it lead you into a deeper, closer relationship with them? No. If you distrust somebody in your marriage, if you distrust your spouse, does it lead you to want to be closer to them? No, it leaves you cold. The difference here is that God had not shown him in any way untrustworthy. But they had. Nothing is more illogical or unreasonable than that, that we should not trust the Lord. And unbelief refuses to accept overwhelming evidence because it does not want to believe. Jesus made this clear in the parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. um, that, that, That there's no evidence of God's goodness and God's love and God's power and God's provision sufficient for the person who does not want to believe. When he said this, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. If you won't listen to the word, it doesn't matter if Jesus is resurrected and standing in front of you. If you won't listen to what God says, you can't be persuaded by that. So unbelief, perhaps you see this, is the most basic fallen human condition of every heart. I am my own worst enemy. From myself, Augustine prayed, save me. Oh, Lord, 
Stop then waiting for more proof before you believe in Jesus. Stop saying, I'll believe in Jesus when God satisfies my every objection. Because then what you're really saying is, when God bows to me, then I'll bow to him. When God answers every question of my unbelief, then I'll believe. When God gives me as much knowledge of everything as he has knowledge of everything, then I'll acknowledge him as he is, but not until then. And I say to us, how absurd. You want to make him your servant. And you want to be God to him. You want him to make you God before you choose to have him as your God. And he's not going to do that for you. He will not have you on those terms. And so unbelief here is seen as the supreme evidence of an evil heart. And you and I just don't think that way. We don't think that it's a big deal not to trust Jesus. Now maybe we think it's really bad if you're a practicing homosexual. Or maybe we think it's really bad if you're an axe murderer. Or really bad if you commit perjury in the greatest trial in the history of the world. Or, or really bad if, if you're a hypocritical Christian. Maybe we think those things are really, really bad. But we feel pretty good about ourselves because we don't do those things. And we say to ourselves, my heart doesn't feel evil for not trusting Jesus. Exactly. How proud you are. How confident in your own righteousness. How arrogant to think that you're just fine standing on your own two feet before a holy, just God who knows every secret in your heart, mind, action, word. And how sad. It's unforgivable. It's unforgivably sad. If you reject the only person who can bring you pardon from God, you have no other place to get it. If you reject the only person who can give you everlasting life with God, because he's the living and true God, there is nowhere else you can get it. But here is the good news for all of us. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus lived among us. He was tested in the wilderness. He was tempted by the devil. And unlike all of us, unlike all of us, his heart was true to God. He trusted God for provision. He counted on God for protection. He obeyed God's word. He listened to his voice. He didn't put the Lord his God to the test. He worshiped and served the Lord God only. As a man in our place, Jesus walked the steps of Israel. He succeeded where they failed. He succeeded where you have failed. Just put your trust in Him, shelter yourself in Him, look to Him, and when you find yourself struggling, cry out to Him, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. This is what the hard heart will not do. It wants answers to every objection, it wants satisfactions for every desire, and it won't repent until it gets what it wants. Answer to me, Jesus, be my servant, and I shall be your Lord. And there is no salvation in that. May that hardness of heart 
never be true of us. And may the Lord make it so. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Change us. Grant to us a new heart by the Spirit of Christ. Take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And strengthen us. Help us to trust you. Help us to look to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing and look to the Lord.